If you don't already have it, there is an outline handout. At least there were copies back there. I'm not sure how many are left uh, on the back table. So if that will be helpful, feel free to uh, step up and grab one. We will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this afternoon. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're not covering the whole chapter this afternoon, but we are tackling verses 1 through 12, which is quite enough because of how Paul the Apostle tightly packs his words with significance. I'm titling this sermon, Purity and Power in Gospel Ministry. Purity and Power in Gospel Ministry. We've covered, but it's it's been a while, but when we had the chance, we covered in two sermons, chapter 1, in which Paul, the apostle, um, along with his associates, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, they are um, sending this letter, particularly Paul is writing this letter to this young church in Thessalonica, northern Greece, the Roman province of Macedonia. Paul planted the church on his second missionary journey, as we call it, but he was run out of town before he was able, or before he would have desired to leave. And so this was a church uh, that could have floundered, could have faltered. It could have ceased to be a church very easily because of persecution from the Jewish synagogue as well as the pagan Gentiles. And many lies and and misunderstandings about who these Christians were in their faith, their newfound faith. But all throughout the Thessalonian epistles, Paul, uh, you, you, you hear this note of Paul standing up for his gospel ministry when he had been there. And it, it is, um, it seems evident that he does that partly because he knows all, all the hate that he is receiving and that the church there is receiving and all the slander about Paul the Apostle and his associates. They're just in it for the money, for the recognition. They are evildoers concocting their own new religion. They, they, they want to mooch off of people and, and the lies went on. But Paul expresses confidence first in chapter 1 in these believers that, the, that God's work in them was genuine. And he reminded them of what he saw in them and through them that, that showed uh, God's stamp of approval that they were his. That the gospel really had changed them. Most of them had been pagan Gentiles and they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers them from the wrath to come. So Paul had started not by focusing on himself, but focusing on how much he could thank God for what God had done in them, transforming them through the gospel. Now, Paul backs up and reminds them that his ministry among them was a true gospel ministry. And he had nothing to be ashamed of, and thus they had nothing to be ashamed of, knowing that he had planted their church. And he had given them their gospel that they had entrusted their souls to. 
So purity and power in gospel ministry. The big idea, I think, as listed there in your notes, is that calling God to witness, Paul could confidently stand by his ministry in Thessalonica. Let's read the whole chapter, or the whole text, verses 1 through 12, to begin. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So calling God to witness... Paul could confidently stand by his ministry in Thessalonica. You see that emphasis on calling God to witness all throughout here. Notice how many times God's name is used in connection with calling him to the witness stand, as it were, to testify to the truth of Paul's words. Also, that phrase, the gospel of God, is used over and over again. It's not our gospel, it's God's gospel we proclaimed. Calling God to witness, Paul can confidently stand by his ministry among these people. And though he was prevented by Satan more than once from returning to them personally, he could send this letter to do his best to build them up and bolster them in their newfound faith. And he's reminding them they have nothing to be ashamed of in how they got that faith. So we see... Number one, Paul's confident rehearsal of his ministry in Thessalonica. We'll talk about our proper response to it all as the second big point. But first of all, as we work through the text, Paul's confident rehearsal of his ministry in Thessalonica. Number one, verses one through two, his courageous, his courageous boldness in conflict. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't empty of results. Um, contrast that with what he says later in chapter 3 and verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul had been concerned that perhaps it was all empty because 
it would have been empty of results if if those who had professed Christ had fallen away from the faith. But now he's speaking in the past about when he was there that they know his coming to them. Um, the time when Paul began the church there, his activity there was not in vain. But, verse 2, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, though that was where we were coming from to get to Thessalonica, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And that's why his coming to them was not in vain. It bore good fruit in conversions because they were not timid with the gospel. Though they were coming beaten and bruised from Philippi, where they had been unlawfully, because they were Roman citizens, Paul and Silas, they had been unlawfully beaten before the judges and thrown in the stocks. They were coming from that, from persecution, from false accusations because Paul had cast a demon out of a slave girl. They could have been in the mood to just be on the timid side and not be very bold with their message. they just gotten beat up for it. But they were bold. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. It's not because Thessalonica was such a peaceful place that Paul felt, oh, I'm safe here to do my gospel ministry. No, it was right in the middle of much conflict. So as Robert Cara in his commentary says, the Thessalonians knew that Paul was aware that his bold speech in Thessalonica might well result in the same punishment as it did in Philippi. This fact confirmed both the courageousness and the integrity of Paul's preaching. As usual, as I said, Paul packs a lot into a few words. He says, we had boldness in our God. You could take that two slightly different ways. In our God. Uh, he had boldness because it was in our God. Um, some, like G.K. Beale, will say, uh, Paul here is saying, this is before God, knowing we are in God's presence. God is seeing everything we do, and so we're doing it for his sight, before him. Um, and so he would take the Greek that way. Before God. Um, I think I, I lean actually towards a second option. Um, again, Robert Carras says, here it refers specifically, uh, being in our God, refers to God's help as an aspect of Paul's union with God. God aided Paul to have the courage to speak boldly. Paul talks a lot, a lot about being in Christ, uh, safe in and in union with Christ. Here he uses the phrase, in God, in our God. Paul is one with God through the work of Jesus Christ. And so, as an aspect of that, he has God's aid, God's help. He's not doing this on his own. God is strengthening him. God's giving him boldness. He's fueling him in this work. Either way you take it, it lines up with other scriptural truths, of course. There, as I also have mentioned already, there's a phrase here that Paul repeats throughout this text to emphasize the source and authority of his message. The gospel of God. 
His courageous boldness was anchored in the, in the God whose word he was commissioned to proclaim. He was not an ambassador for the emperor. He was something much greater. Not because of who he was, but of, because of who, who the one he served was. This is the gospel of God. How could I not be bold to proclaim it? So, his courageous boldness in conflict... That characterized his ministry in Thessalonica. Secondly, verses 3 through 5, his truthful purity before God. Verse 3, for our appeal, appealing to sinners to repent and believe the gospel, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. There are aspects of of what Paul denies here that were common criticisms of traveling philosophers in the day. And they were too often true, of course. There would be traveling speakers people with a new idea, a new philosophy, who um, did not have pure motives. They were underhanded uh, in why they wanted to spread this message. Um, They would flatter people to gain... uh, They wouldn't be straightforward with people. They would flatter people to get an in with them and to get their support. They would perhaps um, lie to them. They would deceive them. Sometimes they were doing it for money, sometimes for, for notoriety, for fame, whatever. These were common, common um, criticisms of the day of traveling philosophers and teachers. And so it seems like the, the enemies of the gospel in Thessalonica are probably, they're not, um, they're not only upset by the gospel itself and by Jesus Christ, now they're, because they are upset with those things, they broad brush Paul with the same brush used against traveling teachers in general. He's, he must be greedy. He must be using flattery. It was a convenient way to, to disparage Paul and his message. Now he says, we are approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And a little later he says, He speaks of doing things to please God who tests our hearts. The same word actually in the Greek there is used, is translated approved and then tests. Um, It's a word that can mean examine or test or it can mean approve. And sometimes it means a little of both. You examine something and test it and then as a result you approve it. It's genuine. It's good. And so God is the one who has approved Paul, uh, found him um, not worthy in himself, but uh, it is God who has approved him, put his stamp of approval on Paul as his gospel minister. And he says, again, um, we acted in truthful purity because it was before God who tests our hearts. We're not looking for people merely to test us and then approve of us. We're looking for God to do that.
In that phrase, God who tests our hearts, that, um, that alludes to wording a lot of places in the Old Testament. Some think that here Paul is sort of alluding to, sort of referring to one particular text in Jeremiah 11. Uh, I won't go into all the details of that, but basically the context is Jeremiah the prophet has enemies who, uh, who, have, who are devising plots against him. And yet Jeremiah is confident that God will deal with them. And God, he says, is the one who tests emotions and hearts. And thus God will, will give both to his true prophet and to the prophet's enemies what is right. Uh, similarly, Paul has adversaries. He has enemies. But Paul is saying, God knows the motives of my heart and of their hearts. And God will make all that right, either now or at the second coming when Christ returns, to which he's already referred. Because God tests the heart... And because the gospel is God's gospel, Paul says his ministry is not to please man, but to please God. Similar to what he said in Galatians 1, isn't it? And our brother Kevin preached from this text not long ago. Galatians 1, 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Similar point he's making. He's trying to please God, not man, because the message he bears is God's, not man's. Paul condemns what is true of too many teachers, that they use words of flattery. Paul did not, but others do. Again, as the commentator remarks, tact and kindness in speech are not wrong, but a controlling motive of seeking to profit from speech is sinful. There's a way of telling people nice things about them, whether they're true or not, to make them like you and open them up to what you're really after. That's flattery. Paul says, we didn't do that. And you know that. So we've seen his courageous boldness in conflict, his truthful purity before God. Third, his selfless nurture of converts. Verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Um, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. His selfless nurture of converts. We weren't seeking glory from you. Rather, it was very evident we were pouring ourselves out for you. And does it strike you as strange that Paul, the the masculine apostle, is comparing himself to a nursing mother. (laughs) Well, he does that. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. That word for taking care of her own children. um, G.K. Beale says it occurs in the Greek New Testament for a mother bird caring for her newborn young or her eggs. 
She conforms her life to meet the needs of the new lives of her young, just like human mothers do. The mother must take the initiative to pattern her life around the life of the newborn in order properly to meet the child's needs. And isn't that the truth, if you've had kids? (laughs) Not that the kid runs the household now, but it sure does change things, doesn't it? And this is the sort of care, nurture, that Paul says, I exercised for you as new believers. Someone else, um, actually it's the same commentator, he, he remarks that Paul may have used this motherly image, not just because it was a good image of gentleness, but also because Paul is representing the true God, the true and living God, as he called him in chapter 1, verse 9. And God himself compares his relationship with his people Israel in the Old Testament as a mother caring for her young. Paul's reflecting God's character in this. G.K. Beale says, Paul reflected God's character before his newborn converts, and so should we toward new Christians and generally toward one another. Christians in a local church need to know one another well enough in order that they can know, pray for, and even meet one another's needs. Such behavior breathes the air of the first century church. We in today's impersonal technological age need to be more like our first century ancestors in the faith, he says. So according to verse 8, where he says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls, because you had become very dear to us. We see Paul was not trying to maintain a professional distance from the church members at Thessalonica. He wasn't there to do a service to get paid or something, just there to do his job and never see them day to day, not be involved in them. He wasn't trying to maintain this distance between the clergy and the laity or something. Quite the opposite. He was affectionately desirous of them. He wanted to share not only the gospel itself, but his own soul. That's the word here. No detached clergyman. And this rolls into verses 9 through 10, where we see verses 9 through 10, his tireless labor for believers. Tireless labor for believers. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. How how confident before God and in your conscience do you have to be to say, you're witnesses, I'm calling on you as a, a witness in court, and I'm calling on God too to witness how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. And Paul's not using that those words in the sense of that he had some period of Christian perfection and sinlessness while he was with them. That's not the point. But he's using these words in, in their, their uh, sense they often have of um, integrity, uh, of basic purity and holiness and godliness. He tirelessly labored for believers. He worked 
probably at his tent-making job, as he did later in Corinth. Um, Robert Cara here says, in order not to burden the Thessalonians financially. However, he explicitly taught elsewhere that preachers ought to be paid by their churches. And uh, Robert Carr lists the, the, the text here. He says, in fact, while at Thessalonica, Paul did receive money from the Philippian church, according to Philippians chapter 4. So why in Thessalonica, he asks, and Corinth, did he refuse to be paid by the church? Apparently, in the light of his opponent's charges against him, he thought at best not to put a stumbling block in the way of preaching the gospel, similar to 1 Corinthians 9.12, and to provide a good example of the work ethic, 2 Thessalonians 3.9. So Paul's not saying here that every gospel minister must do this exactly how he did it on this occasion. He didn't always exactly do it in this way. But in Thessalonica, Paul went out of his way, beyond the call of duty, to establish these people in the gospel while removing every hindrance possible. Take the accusations right out of the mouths of people before they can make them. And teach these believers, some of whom may not have been used to having to work hard, perhaps they were clients of wealthy patrons, perhaps they didn't need to do much for themselves, but Paul was teaching these new converts, particularly the pagan Gentiles, the healthy work ethic that's not just a good idea, it's basic Christianity. So he was setting them an example also. He didn't just want to do his bare duty toward these people. He wanted to go above and beyond to give them everything they could possibly need and to remove every hindrance possible to them receiving the truth and living it out well. Fifth here, verses 11 through 12, we see his fatherly instruction in holiness. As a father, he instructed these people in holiness. Verse 11, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He uses three overlapping words here. We exhorted you. We encouraged, or you could say comforted you, and we charged you. It's a solemn command. Um, That brings together the the whole range of what a minister of the gospel must do. Um, A range from gentleness to sometimes severity. But as a father, as a father would with his children. Like a father with his children, we did all this. And what was the goal? That they would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Also, that that word charging them actually is the word for testifying. Um, Related to our word, we eventually got martyr. (laughs) Um, It refers to solemn and serious speech. G.K. Bill says, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This does not mean that they must earn their way into the kingdom, but that walking worthy is the external evidence of a person truly saved by Christ, a badge necessary for entrance into God's kingdom. 
The apostle dealt, notice, not just with the church as a whole, and this is a challenge for for uh, ministers, for elders in a church. Every church has to get better at this. But the Apostle Paul is a certainly example here. He didn't just deal with the church as a whole, but with the people individually. Each one of you, he says, we exhorted each one of you this way. He exercised loving authority, as a father would, to nurture and instruct them in holy living. He was a spiritual father to them. Well, that is a high example to follow for any of us. As we think about our service to Christ, and we try to do what Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, follow me as I follow Christ, we look at this and it could be overwhelming to us. Remember, Paul was made of the same stuff we are. But we also have the same Lord and Master he had, who empowered him. We have the same God in whom he could do these things. And we should not just say, well, that was the Apostle Paul. Of course he's going to be the best of the best. Uh, we should be satisfied, though, ourselves with just getting by. We, we shouldn't bother ourselves with aspiring to that sort of ministry. Now, that's, that's not how we should respond. We should say this is what any gospel ministry for the Lord should be like. Again, the big idea was calling God to witness. Paul could confidently stand by his ministry in Thessalonica. So let's talk about our proper response to Paul's exemplary ministry. What's there here for us directly? With our limited time, this will be a rapid fire shotgun approach because there's so much to imitate. But we're kind of point by point answering all these points Paul made about his ministry and translating them for, for us. So in answer to his courageous boldness in conflict, we should imitate courageous boldness for the gospel. That's pretty clear. So are you that way in the office when a topic related to spiritual things comes up? And there's a clear-cut answer from the Word of God. Are you confident to speak up in a gentle but direct way, knowing that what you say in this instance is not just your opinion, it's God's truth? Often we are cowards about the gospel in public because we... Uh, we sort of accept the false premise of the world that, well, that's just our opinion against their opinion. Who are we? Well, it's not about us. It's about who our God is and the fact that his truth prevails and defines everything else. That will give us courageous boldness for the gospel. And the real challenge is, is to truly imitate Paul and having already been beat up for the gospel, we get up and courageously champion that gospel again. That's how we imitate Paul here. Not just when things are good, but when you've just suffered. You've just been maligned. You've just been mistreated. For trying to be true to Christ, you get up and do it again. 
We can only do that if we have our eyes on God rather than on people. Again, as I said, this is rapid fire. There's so much more we could say on each point. But second, in answer to Paul's truthful purity before God, we should have truthful purity produced before God. We all have to be wary of our own motives and our words and maintain a pure heart and message. And that only happens when we live in light of God's presence, his power, his approval. A pure heart doesn't just happen. We can't just assume we have it. We can't just assume, of course my motives are pure. Of course what I say is pure. (laughs) The heart is deceitful above all things, Scripture says. We have to actively maintain a pure heart and message, and the way we do that is we always have in mind that we are in God, in Christ, God is here right with us. We have his power and his approval to do his work his way. That's how we have truthful truthful purity produced before God. Then we will also have sure footing to challenge the world when it slanders our message and it slanders our motives as believers. Again, there's various places where this overlaps with the morning sermon. Again, you're not going to avoid slander. You're not going to avoid the world lying about you. But we can sure make we can make sure that there's no truth to their claims. Now, in answer to Paul's selfless nurture of converts and also his fatherly instruction in holiness, we need family affection for believers. Family affection for believers. Ask yourself this: <clears throat> How will it look in my life? if I truly treat believers as closer than blood? What will change in my life? And if I've been in the faith a long time, can I seriously say that I function with motherly care and fatherly encouragement toward others whose only tie to me is our common faith? Do you just feel like Uh, Truthfully, like your association with the people at church is um, a a surface level association on Sundays. Or are they truly family that you treat like family? Individually as well as as a whole body. And in continuing that thought, in further answer to Paul's selfless nurture of converts and And also in answer to his tireless labor for believers, we need to exercise costly nurture of God's little ones. It has to cost us something to nurture the others in the faith around us. Paul worked night and day, worked his fingers raw, so to speak, for their sake. What pains do you take? What sacrifices do you make to cherish and nurture recent converts? What pains do you take to protect them and nourish them and strengthen them? Do you have the answer in your mind? Okay. Now, can you demonstrate that from your calendar or planner? 
Can you demonstrate that from your bank account, from the use of your home and property? Don't just put all this on Paul. That's great that you did that, Paul. (laughs) Think about how it applies to you. You're no less spiritual family with believers than Paul was. Like a mother for her children. I'm just pulling one example out of the air. But like a mother for your children, would you ever consider foregoing a certain career if that career would prevent you from caring for spiritually needy people? I could do it, but I would be too busy for the church. Would you ever even consider that? Mothers should do it all the time and do do it all the time. I can't take that career. I couldn't care for my children. (laughs) Like a father who will work overtime to provide for his own, will you go the extra mile and get up early or stay up late to provide spiritual support for those in this church? You don't have to be a church officer. You don't even need gifts of public teaching. You could be a man or a woman. You could be a boy or a girl. And you can let the word of Christ dwell on you richly, as Paul wrote, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. That's Christianity. Consider this. If there are signs of chronic spiritual weakness in a church, number one, it could be because the pastors are not feeding the flock adequately. And that happens a lot. But it could also be because whether or not the shepherds are faithful, other church members are not acting as their brother's keeper. That could also be the case, and is often the case. Look at Romans 15 with me. Romans 15, verse 14. Do not say to yourself, do not say that, well, I just don't have the gifts that um, a pastor or a teacher might have, or, or I don't have the place that a, a deacon might have, or a Sunday school teacher, or something like that, so uh, this isn't really for me. Look what Paul says about all believers in the church at Rome, for instance. Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. With, If that's true of believers, just as believers, that comes with a responsibility, doesn't it? Uh, Paul continues then that on some points he had written to them very boldly by way of reminder because of the unique grace God had given him as a minister to the Gentiles, etc. But he's saying, I'm not writing this epistle to you Romans because I think you don't know any of this and you can't teach each other even, instruct each other. That That's what it is to be a Christian. Similarly, Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 13 Take care, brothers, you in the church, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But make sure your elders do their job 
and warn people who are going the wrong direction. That's not what it says. Next verse. But exhort one another every day. Not just Sunday. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I'm not saying these things because... um, because I'm venting about some frustration I have in this church, I'm saying them because they're the text, and we all need to think about this. And even if we've done well in the past, we can let things slide and forget these principles very easily, because we get distracted, don't we? Now, in further answer to Paul's fatherly instruction in holiness, we need a godly sobriety about Christian living. Godly sobriety about Christian living. He charged, he exhorted and encouraged and charged each one of them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Does it matter to us whether our lives are worthy of our calling? Is there a proper sobriety about Christian living? Well, what sorts of things might Paul have emphasized about sober Christian living if he had more time to expand on it? There's a good answer to that in Titus. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus 1 verse 12. Paul is telling Titus that he needs to establish... Get these churches on the island of Crete further established with their own eldership um, in each church. Because, Paul is even very straightforward and honest about peculiar faults and weaknesses of these people on the island of Crete and their culture. Titus 1 verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but but they deny him by their works. Their walk is not worthy of God. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Next verse, but... Verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, what fits the proper teaching of the gospel and of God's word. What what accords with sound doctrine? Well, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, And so trained the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And he wraps it up this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Are we sober-minded about the details of our lives and if they are worthy of God's kingdom and glory? Well, we've covered a lot because Paul packs a lot in. Calling God to witness, Paul could confidently stand by his ministry in Thessalonica. Can we... Can we, likewise, stand by our ministry here? Because this church ministry is not mine. It's ours. It's ours. What can we thank God that he, by his grace, has enabled us to do faithfully? We should rejoice, as Paul rejoiced, in saying, God is my witness. He enabled me to be pure. And to be bold for Christ among you. If that's the case with us, don't just be self-contented about that. Thank God for it. Make mention of it in prayer. Rejoice together in it. And what by God's grace needs to change. There's always things that could change for the better. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, if we're, if we're receiving this rightly from you, I'm sure we are all humbled and reminded that there are things we should do better for your glory. And particularly for the good of your people and of the lost. But we thank you for what you have accomplished through us in this place already. Not due to our own goodness, we have none of ourselves, but due to your goodness and grace. Lord, we ask that you will prosper us in every good word and work here. Keep transforming our hearts as we gaze on you and your glory, as we, are, uh, as we learn of you, as we learn to know you better. Keep, keep changing us to reflect your glory properly and better and better. Help us not to be content with our natural inclinations, but help us to press on to the prize of the high calling that you've given us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that you've promised to us as your church and as believers. Thank you that you will change us. You are at work within us. Help us to keep in step with and walk in the Spirit, your Holy Spirit whom you've given to us, who will lead us in these paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.